Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Our guest today is Chairman of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. Congressman Adam Schiff is in his 10th term, representing California's 28th Congressional District. Before that, he was a member of the California State Senate, where he served as Chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Congressman Schiff began his career as an assistant U.S. attorney in the Central District of California. Chairman Schiff, welcome to Words Matter. So, Mr. Chairman, you have served nearly two decades in Congress, but before that you were a California state senator and a federal prosecutor, which is a very high-profile public life. But in the last year, really in the last couple of months, uh, your name has become a household name, and not just as a political figure, but as a cultural one. So can you talk a little bit about what that's been like for you and your family on a daily basis and how that's changed for you? Uh, certainly. You know, I, I find that I'm a human focus group now wherever I go, and, and particularly airports. People are more than willing to give you their thoughts in a very unfiltered way uh, at airports because they expect they will never see you again. Most of it is very good. That which is negative is very negative. So I do prompt very strong reactions from people. I also have an appreciation for what a lot of my constituents' lives are like because I literally represent Hollywood. And so I now know the phenomenon of being in a restaurant and my wife saying, those people are staring at you and these people are staring at you. But I'll tell you my favorite anecdote about you know, my sudden recognition was walking down the street in New York with my daughter who's in college. And I'm wearing blue jeans and a canvas jacket and sunglasses. And I don't look anything like I do on TV. And I'm kind of surprised that people are stopping me. And she's kind of annoyed because <laughs> in our family, there's only one center of attention and it's her. And um, the last straw was when somebody at an outdoor restaurant, asked her to hold their beer while we took a picture together. And as we walked away, uh, she said, what am I now, the beer holder? And I said, Alexa, I'm just shocked that anybody can even recognize me. And without missing a beat, she says, well, you know, Dad, it's the pencil neck. Uh, so that's what you get from your own kid. But uh, a dose of It's called ge- genetic humbling. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it is. That's uh, a good title. Uh, kids do keep me grounded. That's good. So the House is currently considering two articles of impeachment against President Trump, one for abuse of power and one for obstruction of Congress, based on the factual foundations and the work uh, that your committee did and the House Intelligence Committee's report. And in that same report, you also detail uh, some activity and involvement of Vice President Pence and conclude that he either acted with knowledge or perhaps was an active participant in the factual underpinnings that are being discussed as a part of the impeachment articles now. Do you believe that Vice President Pence violated his oath of office? Well, I believe there's a lot more that we need to learn about what the vice president knew and uh, whatever complicity he might have. I will say that Jennifer Williams, who worked on his staff, works on his staff still uh, on assignment, after she testified uh, and indeed during her open testimony said she had a classified submission to make, she has made that submission. 
We do not think that there is any proper basis to classify uh, that information. We have asked that the vice president declassify it. We think the country should know. We think members of Congress should know. And we will continue to pursue that. Uh, But there are any number of questions that remain unanswered. Even though the evidence of the president's abuse of power is overwhelming, we still have questions about uh, how much the vice president may have been involved, how much the secretary of state was involved. We do know uh, from the few documents we were able to get, not from the State Department, which has given us zero, but Gordon Sondland came to his testimony with documents showing that, yes, everyone was in the loop, including the secretary of state. And obviously there are those that are really at the epicenter, like Mick Mulvaney, who have refused to testify, and of course the entire agency of the OMB and the White House and the State Department and the Defense Department have all refused our document requests. So we continue the investigation even as we move forward with the articles. So in the Nixon impeachment, the question was, what did the president know? When did he know it? In this case with the president, we know what he knew and when he knew it because he told us in, in the transcript. But is that a legitimate question for the vice president? It is a legitimate question for the vice president. And the point you make, Joe, I thought was so powerfully made by Eric Swalwell during the hearing. I was particularly struck by something as I watched a replay of the president on the White House lawn when he was asked, what did you hope for when you asked Zelensky that favor on the July 25th call? And it was really a question because, of course, we didn't have the call record until months later. It was a question about what did he want when he asked Zelensky for that favor, but the president answered it in the present tense uh, and made it abundantly clear that he is still asking Zelensky to do these investigations. As the president said, it's a very simple answer. And that that very simple answer is essentially the president is still trying to get foreign interference in our next election, which is why uh, we felt it's so imperative to move forward with these articles, because the usual remedy for a bad president of voting them out of office doesn't work when the president is trying to cheat in that very election. So there's some in the media who think and have talked about on TV about how somehow these hearings didn't capture America's attention. Uh, I used to work for the NFL and at the Super Bowl, we always knew we couldn't guarantee the game, but we always knew about halftime. Um, so my less serious question is, did you think about maybe bringing in Lady Gaga for the recesses? <laughs> my more serious question is, looking back, do you think there's some way you might have done it differently? Or is this just, say, a, a methodical thing that over time the public will get? Well, I would say a couple of things. First, that the investigation really did move people, and very substantially. It all depends on where you put the starting point. When we began our investigation, when we began the depositions, when witnesses began to release their testimony, uh, their written statements in those depositions, at the beginning of that process, the country was substantially against even doing an impeachment investigation. 55 to 60 percent of the country thought there shouldn't even be an impeachment investigation. Three months later, those numbers have completely flipped. Uh, There had never prior to this investigation been a majority of Americans who believe that not only should there be investigation, but the president should be impeached and removed from office. There is now a narrow majority that believes that to be true. There has been, I think, a settling in of uh, that movement towards impeachment. And what we have seen is that those that have been paying the closest attention have been those that have moved uh, most substantially towards impeachment. 
But there is a group, albeit uh, not a large group, but uh, probably about 15% of the public, that has not been paying close attention to this because they're just trying to get by. Like a great many millions of American families are just trying to put food on the table and provide for their family, and they can't you know, afford to stay home all day and watch a hearing. It is my hope that we can make the case to those that have not been paying close attention that they have every right, indeed they have every need to expect from a president of the United States that they put the interests of the country ahead of any personal interest, that they not abuse their office to interfere, to seek to cheat in an election. And uh, furthermore, that the Congress must provide a check on any president by doing its oversight work. And if a president refuses to allow Congress an equal branch, a co-equal branch, to do that oversight, that is a important and independent basis for that president's removal. So I think one of the, going to that point, one of the underappreciated parts of this is not who has testified, but who has not. All the people with the firsthand knowledge of what went on. If you ran the world and could compel one person involved in this, with the exception of the president, who would you like to put under oath and ask all of these questions of? Well, that's a good question. I don't know that I could identify a top choice, um, but I, I would say that if articles are returned in the House, as I expect that they will be, there may be an opportunity in a Senate trial to hear from witnesses that have been unwilling to come forward. And perhaps even more substantially, uh, we may finally get the documents that the president has ordered not be provided to Congress. Um, it is going to be very difficult, I think, for senators to oppose a subpoena for documents. Um, they would have to essentially say, we're not interested in seeing the evidence. So we may finally get the documents the administration has been withholding. I can't say that for sure. We may finally have access to some of these witnesses, and I certainly think that uh, John Bolton has very relevant testimony, and people like Mick Mulvaney have very relevant testimony, and others as well. Now, Mitch McConnell is going to have a lot of say in what the Senate trial looks like and whether it's a credible trial or whether it's uh, an attempt to whitewash uh, in the president's favor. But if the senators uphold their obligations to faithfully execute the laws themselves and their constitutional duties to get these uh, witnesses and documents that the administration has made such an effort to stonewall. If there is a trial in the Senate, you very well may be a House manager in that trial. This is certainly not the first case you've prosecuted. Would you consider, you mentioned John Bolton and Acting Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney. Uh, we talked about Jennifer Williams. Would you also consider calling the vice president himself? I don't want to, well, first of all, it will be up to the speaker who the House managers are. So I, I don't want to uh, predict that. I do think whoever the managers are, they will want to seek additional documents and testimony. Um, there is a, a big question about um, how Mitch McConnell is going to structure these proceedings and uh, whether he's going to allow witnesses and what kind of witnesses and how the senators are going to be prepared to vote. Are they going to be prepared to vote to hear the evidence or, or not? Are they going to try to bring in extraneous uh, issues? So it's very difficult to predict. And... Uh, you know, I don't want to prejudice what the managers may ultimately ask in terms of witnesses and documents, but the extraordinary thing about the investigation that we were able to do thus far is a complex white-collar criminal case, and this is very much like a complex 
white-collar criminal case, is generally a very document-driven enterprise. We have made this case with almost no documents. Now, we did get a batch of documents from Ambassador Volcker early on in the process, and we got a smattering of documents here and there from people like Ambassador Sondland. But given that we have just seen a fraction of the documents and how incriminating those documents have been, there is a wealth of other information that the White House does not want the Congress or the American people to see. Uh, And so the question that really will hang over the trial is, will the American people and the Congress be able to see this important evidence, or will McConnell try to keep it from the public? My day job is working as a a white-collar defense attorney, so I have spent much of my time steeped in documents, the type of which you talk about. So I certainly understand the challenge of making a case without the documents. But let me take you back in time for a minute and talk about um, how we got here and a, a Republican talking point at the moment. In 2003, you voted in favor of the invasion of Iraq. And then later you were asked if you regretted that decision, and you said, absolutely. Unfortunately, our intelligence was dead wrong on that. And one of the Republican talking points on impeachment is that despite the unanimous conclusion of the U.S. Intelligence Committee that it was Russia that interfered in the 2016 election, that it was, in fact, Ukraine. And the intelligence community is just wrong. So how do you respond to Republicans who say, well, if our intelligence could be dead wrong on Iraq, then why can't it be dead wrong on a Russia, Ukraine, and the 2016 election? You know, it's interesting. I've actually never heard the Republicans make that argument, um, that the intelligence community is dead wrong. They don't. They simply say, we're entitled to our own alternate facts. That's really the argument that they're making, that Maybe the intelligence community is right, but why couldn't it be Ukraine too? Now, never mind there's no evidence of that. We would like to put that out there anyway. And the the amazing thing about this, the the terrible thing about this, is this is Vladimir Putin's talking point. Uh, And indeed, Putin recently said, thank God they're, they're now talking about Ukraine's interference and they're not talking about us anymore. Mission accomplished for Vladimir Putin. I mean, it is it is so telling that President Zelensky, our ally, can't get his foot in the door of the White House. But there's Sergei Lavrov again in the White House, apparently having a wonderful time with our president. And you do hear Republicans, and it is, I think, to their shame, pushing out these Kremlin talking points because they think it helps the president, because they think it will embellish their standing with the president. That, yeah, Russia may have interfered, but Gosh, it could have been Ukraine too, even though there's no evidence of that. It's the, the the false equivalency that says that because one Ukraine one Ukrainian individual posts something in social media, that's the equivalent of the systemic attack on our democracy by the Russian hacking and dumping operation, by their dripping through WikiLeaks and DC leaks and Guccifer Two and these other platforms, information designed to tilt the election towards Donald Trump. Uh, their vast social media campaign. They would equate an op-ed and a social media post here with that systemic interference by Russia. That does no one any good except Vladimir Putin. It undermines our security. But interestingly, I really don't hear the argument that you're suggesting that somehow the intelligence community got it wrong. No, it's, I'm not going to pay attention to that. I just want to put out this propaganda that Putin is the architect of because it helps Donald Trump. That's all they're doing. 
That's really all they're saying. And you can see just how far away from Ronald Reagan today's GOP has drifted, that the party of Reagan would now be a party walking hand-in-hand with Vladimir Putin, undermining a democratic ally, Ukraine, at war with the Russians. That is today's Trumpian GOP. All right, Joe, I know you're busy and don't have time to read or in some cases reread all the books you'd like. And you just discovered an incredible new app and it's called Blinkist. Yeah, Katie, Blinkist is quickly becoming one of the most important apps on my phone. Blinkist is really unique and it works on your phone, your tablet or your web browser. Blinkist takes need-to-know information, the key takeaways from thousands of nonfiction books, and condenses them down into just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. If you read a lot, but still don't get to have time to get to everything you want, Blinkist is made for you. You'll get the key points of a book in just minutes. So with its audio feature, Blinkist makes it easy to finish a book during your commute or on your lunch break or while you're exercising. And 12 million people are using Blinkist right now. And it has a massive and growing library from politics to current events to history books and even topics like business and health. Blinkist has the latest titles from bestsellers lists, as well as the classic nonfiction titles you always meant to read but never had time to or were supposed to read in high school. I know you just started using it, Joe, but you've had a great experience so far, it sounds like. Yeah, I was writing a column for CNN, and I was talking about a book I had read several years ago, and I frankly didn't have time to reread it. So I just went to Blinkist and in 15 minutes had all the key takeaways. So from Michelle Obama's Becoming to Russian Roulette by Michael Isakoff and David Korn to Rick Wilson's Everything Trump Touches Dies, with Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books, all the books you want and all for one low price. And right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash words matter. Try it free for seven days. And save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash words matter to start your free seven-day trial. And you'll also get 25% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash words matter. I want to go to uh, false Republican narratives for $400, Chairman Schiff. (laughs) You are desperate to impeach the president. You've been desperate to impeach the president since the day he was elected, as is Speaker Pelosi. Our listeners know where I am on this because I wrote an op-ed for the New York Times in April saying, please don't impeach the president. It's not the right thing to do. And I changed my mind and tweeted about an hour on that, I think, Friday night where you came out late in the day and said there's new information that we have to get to the bottom of. Take us back a little bit to that time and how that changed your mind, because if my memory is correct, you were arguing, go slow on impeachment. We don't need to impeach this president now. That's exactly right. And, and ironically, I also wrote an op-ed for The New York Times uh, that was given the title Democrats don't take the bait on impeachment about a year, year and a half ago. What changed my mind, what, what made, I think, it inevitable that we traveled down this road, of course, was the president's own conduct. But in particular, two things. One was that this Ukraine misconduct was the most egregious of anything thus far in his administration. And that's saying a lot. It was one thing when the president, as a candidate for office, 
invited foreign interference in our election. Hey, Russia, if you're listening, hack Hillary's emails. And in fact, as the Mueller report made clear on the very day he said that, the Russians, in fact, did try to hack Hillary's emails. But it was one thing when he was a candidate. It's another thing when he, as president, sought to obstruct the investigation into that campaign misconduct. But it is still more serious when, as president, he's using the power of his office to coerce an ally by withholding hundreds of millions of military aid, dollars of military aid, to get them to interfere in our election. That was the most serious misconduct. And that was the most significant turning point for me. But I'll add one other thing. And that was the timing. And that is, on the very day after Bob Mueller testified, on the very day after Donald Trump concluded the Mueller investigation is over, he was back on the phone, this time with a different person, President Zelensky, asking once again for foreign interference in our affairs on the day after Bob Mueller testified. And that said to me, this is a president who believes he cannot be indicted. He cannot be impeached. He is above the law. He is unaccountable. As he said some time ago, under Article 2, I can do anything I want. And I don't think there's anything more dangerous than an unethical president who believes they can do anything they want. So um, I know you're not supposed to answer hypothetical questions, but I'm going to ask one and please try. Okay. Um, I know in your heart you know you're doing the right thing here. But if you sit a year or so from now and the politics of impeachment turn bad and the House returns to Republican control, Donald Trump gets a second term, will you still think that you've done the right thing? Yes. Um, I think we have to do our constitutional duty and let the chips fall where they may. And the fact that the Republicans may shirk their duty doesn't excuse us from doing our own. I don't know what the politics of this are. Uh, I think you can make a good case that one base is more excited or the other base is more excited. I don't think that's what I should be considering, and so I don't. I think I need to be looking to my own oath of office, uh, my own constitutional duty. Impeachment is the most powerful form of disapproval of a presidential action. Uh, I think it has a certain weight on its own, uh, regardless of what the Senate does. It is a deterrent to presidential abuse. No president wants to be impeached. Clearly, this one doesn't. And if our conduct in the House, regardless of what the Senate may do, deters this president or any future president from like misconduct, it will have been worth it. And I think that uh, we do our jobs. We hope that uh, we make the case as well as can be made and that uh, at the end of the day, we have the right outcome. So as our listeners know, we begin every episode with a quote from the late Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, which is everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. And Senator Moynihan left the Senate the same year that you came to Capitol Hill in 2001. And it's pretty clear that during your almost two decades in Congress that we have transitioned from a discourse that was had some semblance of a factual basis to political partisan talking points. How and why did that happen? And do you think that that's going to change? Or are we stuck in this now? It's a really good question, and actually I think it gets back to something Joe had asked earlier about public opinion. Is public opinion going to change in any of this? Part of the challenge is now how we get our information. I'm old enough to remember being in college uh, for Walter Cronkite's last broadcast, and 
rushing back to my dorm to watch that. And that was a time when there was a large body of agreed upon fact, and we might differ on what to do with those facts, but we agreed there were certain things called fact. Now we're in a world where people choose the information they want. Uh, they turn on one channel or they turn on another. Even more, most Americans get their news on social media where it's already teed up for them, uh, curated for them by algorithms that know what we like and dislike and how old we are and what our ethnicities are, what stories we share or don't share. It's very hard to break through that kind of information bubble that we all seem to live in. And that has, I think, helped contribute to the polarization in Congress. People can be the most outlandish uh, purveyors of the most outlandish falsehoods and be rewarded in Fox primetime. I'm convinced that the big difference between now and Watergate wasn't the discovery of the tapes during Watergate or the absence of tapes now. Indeed, we have our own tapes. It's the call record with the president. But rather the presence of Fox today and the absence of Fox then. If Richard Nixon had an alternate media world like Fox primetime to live in and his supporters could live in it, my conviction is that he would have never been removed from office. So I think the, the, that environment has contributed to the dysfunction and polarization in Congress. The way we fund campaigns has likewise contributed to this. So there's, there's no one solution that is going to get us out of the hole we've dug. But there are a lot of things that will, I think, over time, get us back to a much more functional, much less partisan environment. Ending the gerrymander, I think, will contribute to that. We're going to have to, I think, come to grips with the social media revolution, which to me is every bit as disruptive as the invention of the printing press, but we haven't quite figured out yet how are we to cope with this? How do we not let it divide us the way it has? Um, this medium in which fear and lies travel so much faster than truths. And so these are profound challenges, but I will say this uh, on an optimistic note. The country's been through much worse. The divisions during Vietnam were far deeper and far more deadly. We will get through this. This too shall pass. It didn't start. These problems didn't start with Donald Trump, but he has made them infinitely worse. They will get better when he is out of office. And we will have a, a long road back. But nonetheless, I, I have every confidence in the country. So, Congressman, I feel like I've spent a lot of my career telling people like me now to stop asking questions. We've done it a lot of time, so I'm going to ask the indulgent for one more minute and ask you a series of just yes or no answers. Uh, think of it as the lightning round. The Republicans seem obsessed with having you as a witness. So I just want to ask you some questions and answer yes and no. President Trump has called you a sick bastard and a deranged maniac. Are you a sick bastard or a deranged maniac? No. Uh, can I go beyond a one-word answer? Because when he had like words to say about me last night, I, I wanted to simply reply with a tweet, which was the Merriam-Webster definition of projection, what it is to project onto others. Uh, do you know the identity of the whistleblower? No. Did Ukraine launch a sophisticated attack on the U.S. election system using sophisticated cyber techniques? No. Were more than a dozen Ukrainian uh, nationals indicted by Robert Mueller and a grand jury for interfering in the U.S. election? No. Were Russians accused of and indicted for those two previous things? Yes. Uh, were you, as according to Congressman Radcliffe, investigating the wrong person for a quid pro quo and it should have been Joe Biden? <laughs> no. Did the president put his personal interests ahead of America's interest, and does that rise to the level of impeachment? Absolutely, yes. 
Have you done more marathons and triathlons than President Trump? Yes. Chairman Schiff, thank you for joining us. Thank Thank you very much. All right, Joe. So we were able to cover a lot in a short amount of time sitting down with Chairman Schiff. And he seemed pretty laid back, actually. He was cracking jokes and uh, he's got a lot on his mind, but he seemed ready to do it and pretty calm. Yeah, I was a little surprised. I expected him to be rushed in and rushed out. It's quite a setting. You know, you're sitting in this office and out his window is the Capitol and he's now a key, if not the key player in the most somber and important responsibility Congress has, deciding whether the president's removed from office or not. And um, he seemed in very good form. In fact, it was funny for me who spent so much time in my life telling reporters, last question, last question. Right. The politician, the congressman, the president has to go. He really didn't want to leave. Uh, He had a vote to go take. And we didn't get into this in the interview because of time. He got into office because of impeachment. Now, he got into he ran and he won because he's a great politician and has proved to be a great leader. But Congressman Rogan, who he was running against, was a somewhat popular Republican in the 28th District in California. And he was appointed as a House manager during the impeachment in 1998. And it was his performance in that and the fact that he seemed so partisan and so anti-Clinton that contributed heavily to then State Senator Schiff defeating him in 2000. So there's kind of a strange irony to sitting here 20 years later now with Chairman Schiff looking over and directing the case against another president and impeachment. And I guarantee that Every single day, Chairman Schiff thinks, I ain't going to make the mistakes that Rogan made because I don't want some Rogan light beating me next time. Although we tried to push him on acknowledging that he would be the House manager. He's a natural choice. He's the chairman of the Intelligence Committee. He's a former federal prosecutor. Of course, he's going to be the House manager, one of them. But he was still incredibly deferential to the speaker and, and wouldn't own up to what we know, what he knows, what... We know he knows we know. When you know you're in, you have the luxury of being deferential. Like, I serve at the pleasure of the speaker. When you're one of the other, oh, 25 or 30 Democrats who are candidates to be uh, House managers, it's a prized position. It's a moment in the spotlight. There is peril with it. Congressman Rogan lost his job because of his performance. Uh, Some others did, too. But it is a prize spot. It's a difficult challenge. You have to both campaign for it, but not campaign so hard that the speaker notices your campaign right. for you gotta, it. Right. You got to be cool. Uh, you got to be cool. Uh, and members of Congress um, are good at giving speeches. They're good at sometimes raising their voice and pounding the table. But nuance is not a prerequisite for getting a job in Congress. So. <laughs> We'll come back to this in maybe a couple of weeks and say, here's who did it right, and here's who will be sitting it out, thanks to Nancy Pelosi's noticing. Yeah. So speaking about the Senate trial with him, one of the interesting points that came up is that it's pretty clear that he thinks if the Senate Democrats don't 
kind of demand the documents that they hadn't received so far in the House and some of the witnesses testifying that they are not really doing their jobs. I think he said they're saying to the American people they don't want to hear the evidence, uh, which was a pretty strong remark to make about the work that's left to be done substantively in the investigation. Yeah, I thought in many ways that was the most interesting part of the interview. And there were a lot of interesting parts. But let me take a step back, as I often do, to do a short history lesson. I'm sorry, everyone who has to listen to this all the time. But in 1998, that was the big divide, the big question, whether live witnesses would come to the floor of the Senate. Democrats were desperate to not have Monica Lewinsky on the floor of the Senate. That would have been a circus. Republicans were split. Republicans in the Senate didn't want it. They really just thought it would be a circus. Republicans in the House were desperate for it. Uh, There was a big fight. Uh, Trent Lott and Tom Daschle, the respective uh, Senate majority leader and minority leaders, uh, Lott being in charge as the Senate had the majority, came to a compromise that was effectively we would do video depositions. We would let those depositions be played on the floor. And then when that was done, there'd be a vote on whether they would be live witnesses. The vote was no live witnesses. The House managers were furious. There's a big difference because Democrats are going to argue something different this year, but there is a big difference. In 1998, Ken Starr had access to every document he wanted, every record he wanted, every witness he wanted, and even a blood sample from the president of the United States. He had everything he needed. There really wasn't the need to put these people on the floor. There was grand jury testimony. There were video depositions, everything you could have wanted. It was just overkill. What was most interesting about what Chairman Schiff said yesterday was he thinks that pushing for witnesses on the floor in the Senate are necessary and that it will be much harder for the John Boltons, Mick Mulvaney's, Mike Pompeo's, Rick Perry's, Rudy Giuliani's to defy a Senate trial subpoena. Right. Now, I don't know that that's true. I don't know that that's true I I don't know that's true either, but it's certainly uh, he was signaling that that's what they're going to be pushing for, and that will be a big talking point. And I think Democrats will line up behind them on that. And then that puts that narrow group of Republicans who are not going to vote to remove the president, but either for their reelection concerns or the Mitt Romneys of the world who still have some respect for the rule of law. Uh, That puts them in a tough spot to say, we're not even going to try to get to the the truth, to get to the truth, to the firsthand witnesses. Uh, And that shapes up to be, I think, the central fight that's going to happen in the Senate. This idea of can we compel these people to come in and talk to us because we're the Senate. We're not we're not the lowly house. Right. We are the Senate. And when we tell you to come up here, you better come up here. Yeah. I don't know if it was a talking point or if he actually earnestly thought that the weight of a Senate subpoena would be stronger. But I suspect that it's not. But we'll see. So I know all eyes are trained on the president right now. But another part of the interview that's interesting to me and the piece that I'm going to be watching is is what comes next. It's almost a foregone conclusion. The House is going to impeach. The Senate's going to acquit. But the report that was released by the House Intelligence Committee 
trained its eyes on on Vice President Pence and his behavior as well. And Chairman Schiff brought up the fact that Jennifer Williams came in and she was the staff, is still a staff member for the vice president, and provided testimony that has been classified. And he straight up said nothing in her testimony is classified and the vice president should declassify it and let the people read it and let the House use it as a part of its investigation. I think Pence might be in some hot water here. Almost every answer in the interview was interesting for some reason or another. I think we put two questions to him on Pence, and there was meaning in both of those answers. I think I got the impression from Chairman Schiff that Vice President Pence is a player in this and has kind of gotten off scot-free here, and it's his time in the barrel. I don't know what's in the classified right. testimony. He does, and you know the members do. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's something incredibly damning in there, but there's something in there that puts Pence at the center of this. Right. And up till now, Pence has been able to distance himself from Trump and and this entire drug deal, as John Bolton called it. But he did echo the words of uh, Congressman Swalwell when he said that we got to get to the bottom of what Pence knew and what did he know and when did he know it. And- That, I think, will be something to watch closely going forward. Up till now, Pence has been a somewhat fringe player in this drama. One of the things I think Chairman Schiff was trying to do uh, yesterday was to say, well, hold on a second. He's not a fringe player. He's a central player. And we're going to talk more about this, particularly as we put people on the floor. There's really no reason to believe that the Democrats would ask President Trump to come to the floor and testify. It's a whole different story with the vice president. And one of the things that I took from Chairman Schiff, and he's somewhat inscrutable as far as trying to figure out what he really means, is a um, a hint of frustration that these proceedings have not grabbed the American people's attention the way that it should. They're really going to push these drama points of we need these people on the floor. We need these people to raise their right hand and tell us what they know. Otherwise, this trial is a sham. The other thing he said that came up in the interview, he actually echoed Gabe Sherman, who we had on the podcast a few weeks ago with his book about uh, Roger Ailes and the empire that he built at Fox. And he basically made the claim that it's true that Roger Ailes' dream came to fruition, the fact that Trump will not be removed in large part because of Fox News and that if Fox News existed at the time of Nixon, he also would have remained president and and not stepped down. So I thought he's right about that. And um, here we are. Yeah, listen, if we had had, you know, an hour or two and we could have continued talking for the rest of the afternoon, I do think that he subscribes to the theory that we've been talking about that the objective truth has been under assault in this country now for some time. Trump has lit a match to what was already Tinder that was ready to go, and that we are living very much in kind of a post-truth world where there are facts and there are alternative facts, and it makes any sort of reasonable discussion or, or argument almost impossible to have. Yeah, propaganda. He called yeah. it propaganda, yeah. which... And and the difference between uh, someone like Adam Schiff and, say, Jim Jordan is you have to watch closely to see when he's angry. He doesn't really show it 
as opposed to Jim Jordan, who I think wants us to all think he's going to pop out of his tight shirt and become the Hulk. It's performative uh, anger. Yeah, yeah. And um, my three-and-a-half-year-old son who idolizes the Hulk would love Jim Jordan, but I don't let him watch it. But, um, <laughs> yeah, performative anger yeah, is helpful at times. But not all the time. Right. right? But that's a whole other subject. But there were moments, uh, I think, in this interview where you saw deep frustration and very, very light hint of anger. And one of them was he started talking about Fox and the role Fox plays. And I think that's deeply frustrating to Chairman Schiff based on all the work they've done and how serious they think this is. So looking ahead to what will almost certainly be a January trial in the Senate, how long do you think it'll take? Well, Republicans are signaling they want to do this as quickly as possible. It seems like Trump and and McConnell can't get on the same page. They are definitely not on the same page. I think what McConnell would like to do is have opening statements from the House managers, a series of opening statements from the president's defense team, whoever that is. I assume it's Pat Cipollone, maybe Alan Dershowitz, um, as has been reported, which is bizarre. I mean, you'll have people hanging Jeffrey Epstein banners from the Senate gallery, but Trump generally gets what he wants, no matter how crazy it is. And then I think uh, McConnell will entertain and put on the floor a motion to dismiss, uh, which this is a political exercise, not a legal exercise, but I'll put this question to you. I view it as after the prosecution has put on its case, according to watching law and order, sometimes the defense stands up and motions to dismiss because they didn't reach any standard of of proof. And judges sometimes say, "Okay, you didn't. Trial's over. Right. We may end up there eventually. But I think to Chairman Schiff's point, there's going to be several moves and maybe a trick or two up his sleeve to try and get the actual investigatory material that they haven't been able to get yet. And to his point, they actually wrote their report and submitted all of this with very few documents. Uh, So there's a lot more out there to get that I suspect will come up in the trial. Yeah. So again, you know, from a strategy point of view, McConnell, and he may not have the votes to to do a motion to dismiss. One of the real dramas in the 1999 Senate trial was Robert Byrd, Senator Byrd from West Virginia's motion to dismiss. He wrote a motion to dismiss where right at the end of it, it said, "I, I move to dismiss the charges. But the first 14 pages of it were excoriating Bill Clinton. And like in terms that Nobody had seen before. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was so harsh. And the problem was that he, a bunch of Democrats said, I can't vote for that. I, I don't believe those things about the president. I believe he made a stupid mistake and we should give him a long time out as, you know, as president and punish him. But I don't believe he is the character that, that Byrd was describing. And it was a lot of back and forth. And Byrd finally, in in frustration, said, fine, I'll take it all out. And he did a straight motion to dismiss. It failed. And they moved forward. Republicans presumably could have the votes to dismiss this pretty quickly and not even take the vote. Now, the problem is, and you alluded to it earlier, that's not what Donald Trump wants. Donald Trump wants wants, a reality TV show. He wants Hunter Biden on the floor. He wants Joe Biden on the floor. He wants a lot of drama. He wants a lot of people to watch. And at the end of it, he wants someone to stand up and say, Donald Trump, not guilty. Article one. Donald Trump, not guilty. Article two. 
And the single most interesting thing to watch after the new year will be where's Mitch McConnell and where's Donald Trump? I will say this. In 1999, Trent Lott and Tom Daschle did what was best for the Senate and took a lot of heat, a lot from his own caucus, Daschle from the White House, including me, publicly, but they did the right thing for the Senate. Mitch McConnell doesn't care about the Senate. He doesn't care about the institution and its role in the country. Uh, We saw that when he deprived Barack Obama of his constitutional right to appoint Merrick Garland. What Mitch McConnell cares about, first and foremost, is being the majority leader. And he's going to do what keeps him as majority leader. And right now, the most important thing on his mind is he's got six Republicans incumbents who are in tough races. And if he comes to the conclusion that the best thing to do is do a quick trial and then dismiss it quickly without even taking up the votes, even if that enrages Donald Trump, he's going to do it. The question will be whether he has the votes because Trump does have a lot of sway with Republicans, uh, other Republicans in the Senate. So it's going to be fascinating uh, to watch the majority. In the House, it was terribly frustrating for Republicans because the Democrats were in the majority. In the Senate, it's going to be terribly frustrating, again, for the Republicans because the rules are different. And it's much easier to be the minority and gumming up the works uh, where you have real ability to gum up the works as opposed to just do four shots of Red Bull and start screaming the way Doug Collins and Jim Jordan do. And the hardest job in America over the next couple of months is not going to be a house manager or you know the White House counsel. It's going to be Mitch McConnell's job. Well, we'll see what happens. We are grateful to Chairman Schiff for sitting down with us, and we'll keep an eye on him as he moves into that role in the coming weeks uh, for the trial. Yes, and now that he's a friend of the pod, um, we hope to have him back when this is all over for a longer session on how it all went. Yep, sounds good. Until next week. Thanks, Katie. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers. 